A steering wheel lock is a device that you attach to the steering wheel of a car to deter thieves. Early permutations of this type of security device operated by connecting the steering wheel to one of the car's pedals, usually the brake or the clutch. But it eventually evolved into a more self-contained sort of thing that looks like a cane and stretches to encompass the steering wheel and nothing else. These newer designs function by preventing the steering wheel from turning, so most modern versions meant for modern vehicles stick to the wheel and consist of two pieces that extend outward from the middle of the steering wheel, locking onto the outer rim, and it then prevents steering by basically being long and cumbersome, its components colliding with other parts of the car, or failing that, the driver's legs, in such a way that it's practically impossible to drive the car while the device is attached. The most popular brand of steering wheel lock, in the U.S. at least, is called the Club, and it was originally introduced in the mid-1980s, though the earliest version of the Club was relatively simple to bypass, using Freon, of the kind that comes in little aerosol bottles for refilling air conditioners. You would spray the Club with Freon, and then shatter it once it was frozen. Later models were made of an alloy that would not shatter in this way, but they could still be bypassed by either hitting the club with a hammer for a few minutes, deforming it to the point that it can be removed, or by utilizing some kind of hacksaw to cut through a part of the car's steering wheel. So basically you can't drive the car while the club is attached to the wheel, so you cut through a part of the comparably soft steering wheel, take out a chunk of it, and that allows you to slide the club off the wheel and use the car as normal. This device's use, by the way, and the reason that it's necessary to begin with, is due to a flaw in the way many cars have been built over the decades. It's possible in many models of vehicle to hotwire the ignition switch, the part that allows you to turn the vehicle on, in such a way that you can start the engine without having the proper key. The details of how this is done vary from model to model, but generally, hot wiring involves popping off some component of the vehicle's dashboard or steering column, finding the proper wires, which, when connected, will tell the car's system that the ignition process has been completed. These wires are ultimately connected when the owner turns the key in the car to start it, so this process bypasses the component of the car that keeps everything turned off or in standby mode rather than on or ready mode, and that allows the thief to then drive the car to a second location where it can be sold or scrapped or whatever else. Because cars, for a long time, could just be hot-wired with varying degrees of difficulty, it was necessary to try to keep someone who successfully hot-wired your car from just driving off. The steering wheel lock was a solution to this problem that, while not making a vehicle perfectly safe from being stolen, increased the difficulty of performing that sequence of tasks. Rather than quietly and calmly stepping into a car and popping off a few pieces of plastic from the steering column and finding the right wires to cross before being able to turn the car on and drive it away, a thief would also have to either pound the club with a hammer or take a hacksaw to the steering wheel before being able to make off with their prize. And that additional time, mere minutes perhaps, but possibly much more physically involved, loud, and tool-necessitating minutes which could provide time for passers-by or the owner of the car to stop the thief or see them or call the authorities. 
That extra time and effort on the thieves' part has been enough of a selling point to make these things useful and popular, especially in traditionally theft-heavy regions. Beginning in the late 1990s, though, a device, which was originally developed and patented in 1919, but which took a while to become relatively inexpensive and practical to include in most vehicles, became mandatory in new cars throughout parts of Europe and the UK, and that requirement eventually expanded out to Australia and Canada and the rest of the car manufacturing world. This device, called an immobilizer, is an anti-theft device that makes hot-wiring a car a lot more difficult, and in some cases practically impossible. The immobilizer device is buried somewhere in the engine, and it listens for a transponder signal sent by the car's key, or more commonly its key fob, the little dongle that has the buttons for opening the car and such, which in more recent vehicles doesn't even need to be plugged into function. You just have to have it in the car to start things up and get going. That key or key fob contains a transponder chip that sends a wireless signal containing a passcode to the immobilizer contained in the car's innards. And lacking that passcode, the ignition will not start. In fact, in some cases, if it receives the wrong passcode, an alarm will sound. And the same is true if someone tries to mess with the immobilizer. Some immobilizers make use of a two-code system, one that is baked into the hardware and one that is ever-changing, which provides the car with an additional layer of security. It won't start unless the FOB transponder sends both codes correctly, and that second code changes regularly enough that someone who is able to replicate the hardware code via some technological means will still not be able to wirelessly hotwire the car. What I'd like to talk about today is a security flaw that has been discovered and well-utilized by teams of thieves across the United States, and a sort of media-driven moral panic that has emerged as a consequence. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from TechCrunch, and it's entitled Kia and Hyundai Sued After Viral TikTok Causes Rise in Thefts. I chose this article rather than one of the many others recently published on this topic because it's from a generally fairly reputable source, but suffers from one of the main, very common issues surrounding this story, something that we might think of as a misinterpretation of cause and effect. But before I get into that, let's talk for a moment about catalytic converters. Catalytic converters are vehicle components that were originally developed in their proto-form back in the late 19th century, but which were better refined to the point that they became essential by the late 20th century. That essentialness was partially the consequence of how the technology developed to become cheaper and more efficient. It was originally optimized for use in smokestacks, then eventually scaled down for automobile use. But it was also the consequence of regulations that slammed into place relatively quickly all around the world in the mid-1970s, beginning in the United States and then spreading elsewhere with decent haste. Those regulations and that hasty spread stemmed from concerns about pollution and the impact car exhaust was having on the environment. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency passed new regulations on vehicle exhaust that went into effect beginning in 1975, 
So all vehicles sold in the U.S. from that year forward were required to have catalytic converters installed by default. And because the U.S. is such an important market for vehicles made by companies internationally, that requirement took off elsewhere as well. Catalytic converters strip car exhaust of many pollutants that otherwise make it into the air. They accomplish this through several means, but key to their functionality is the presence of precious metals like platinum, palladium, and rhodium, among others, which serve as catalysts for breaking the car exhaust into chemical pieces and rendering some of the worst stuff inert. That is a dramatic simplification, but the important thing to know here is that catalytic converters keep some of the worst polluting chemicals out of the air, and they are able to do this because they contain precious metals in very small quantities. Generally, those precious metals, because there isn't much of them in these car components, are not terribly valuable. Or rather, they are worth something, but typically not enough to bother stealing because of how tricky and risky it can be to access this component, which is located along the bottom of the car, and how cumbersome and effortful it can be to cut it off. It's attached to the car's exhaust system, so it's not something you can just pop off. You generally have to use a power saw to cut it free. And again, that is a power saw used on a system located on the bottom of the vehicle. So getting there is tricky. Often you have to use one or two power saw blades to get it, so it's a little bit expensive. And these saws tend to be loud, so it's a bit risky. Supply chain issues sparked by the COVID-19 pandemic and its associated economic weirdness, however, changed that math. Suddenly these metals were in short supply and their price skyrocketed and the cost and risk associated with stealing them became a bit less of a concern. The payout was worth it, especially if you could steal a bunch of them all at once. As a consequence of that change in economic algebra, there's been a wave of catalytic converter thefts over the past few years, with local groups getting together to hit cars that they've spotted and mapped ahead of time sequentially over the course of a night. And in some cases, we've seen gangs of catalytic converter thieves move from city to city, hitting neighborhood after neighborhood before then moving on to the next area they are intending to ransack. These groups then sell the stolen converters to scrapyards, either locally or in the next city they move on to, and they receive payment of somewhere between a few hundred to a few thousand dollars apiece, that price varying by location, but also time period. They were worth less before the pandemic, worth something close to that today, now that some of those supply chains have been rebalanced, but were worth a whole lot when this shortage was at its peak. These thefts are still ongoing. There was a recent report from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, for instance, that the city's school buses were all hit overnight, with 11 buses now inoperable until they can get the converters replaced at a very high cost, usually a few thousand dollars apiece. But that particular crime wave has been tempered for the moment, down significantly from its height about a year ago. The new hotness in the car-related theft space has already emerged, though, and entered the mainstream consciousness. And that new trend is focused on very specific car models made by Hyundai and their subsidiary brand, Kia, manufactured during a particular period. More specifically, some versions, trim levels to use the industry's parlance, of Accent, Elantra, Elantra GT, Kona, Palisade, Sonata, Santa Fe, Santa Fe Sport, Santa Fe XL, 
Tucson, Velastar, and Venue Hyundai vehicles produced in the 2016 through 2021 model years, and all Kia vehicles produced between 2011 and 2021 that use a steel key are especially vulnerable to theft because they do not have immobilizers in their engines and are thus pretty easy to steal. In fact, to give you a sense of just how easy they are to steal without getting into the real nitty-gritty theft-encouraging details, would-be thieves don't even have to know how to cut and cross wires these days. On these car models, it's as easy as popping off the steering wheel column, taking the key slot apart, and then inserting a USB cable into the ignition tumbler, which, as far as the car is concerned, is the same thing as the proper key. You use the cable to turn the ignition tumbler, and boom, the engine starts. That TechCrunch piece gets into another facet of this wave of vehicle thefts, that it seems to have been driven, at least in part, by a TikTok challenge. A TikTok challenge is a type of video content posted on the social video app TikTok, in which users challenge each other to do something. A bit like the Ice Bucket Challenge on Facebook years ago, if you're old enough to remember that. So something that seems fun or interesting or strange or dangerous is shown in a video. Other people then riff on that idea, recording their own video, all in the hopes of getting some measure of fame and more views and followers. And then folks wanting to go viral and attract attention pile on to do their own version of the same thing. Videos of teenagers stealing Kias and Hyundais, and then driving away in sometimes elaborate fashion, sometimes crashing the cars they stole and then running off, sometimes showing how many cars they stole in a single night, and sometimes taunting police while in these stolen vehicles, began to pop up on TikTok and other video platforms like YouTube and Instagram, which called attention to this hack. Some of the teens literally called attention to the USB hack by showing how easily it could be done and how quickly once you've done it a few times. And some just bragged about it more obscurely, but used the same technique in their videos. What seemed to be video instruction manuals alongside popular bragging videos were noticed by law enforcement and passed around by people who had their cars stolen. And in some places, like where I currently live, Milwaukee, a whole lot of people had their cars stolen using this method. More than two-thirds of all car thefts in the city were these models of car. And figures for 2021 showed that Hyundai thefts were up by over 1,015%, and Kia thefts were up by 3,183% that year. And a dominant portion of the more than 4,300 car thefts reported in Milwaukee in 2022 through June were also Kias and Hyundais. So these videos helped make this vulnerability visible. And that went on at a low level to inform a few lawsuits, class action and otherwise, against Hyundai for not including the relatively cheap immobilizer device in these car models, despite pretty much every other car made in the past 20 years having one by default. The kicker here, though, is that these videos really hit their stride and became truly viral after the dawn of the term Kia Challenge. And the idea of a Kia Challenge seems to have been introduced in a local Fox News report about a Kia theft. It wasn't really a thing before that report, which then led to other mainstream media sources doing follow-up reports on it and repeating that term. What seems to have happened is this news station interviewed the victim of a car theft. She told them that she'd heard about this trend, about how kids are recording videos of themselves stealing these cars and ostensibly encouraging other kids to steal cars as well, and that became the story. 
But in reality, up till that point, the posts related to this wave of thefts were mostly focused on the thieves joyriding the cars they'd stolen so they could brag about how clever and brazen they were. This was clout-seeking behavior, but it wasn't a challenge in the sense of viral thievery being promoted by a young person-centric video platform. It was teenagers doing bad and illegal things and trying to get famous from it. And then once the concept of such a challenge was presented by mainstream media sources, that is when users on these platforms, TikTok, YouTube, etc., began to use that term and an associated hashtag to capture a slice of all the searches that were being made by mostly adults who saw that coverage. This is similar to another supposed TikTok challenge that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, put out a warning about in mid-September, only to discover that it wasn't really a thing, and they had accidentally made this worrisome, dangerous non-challenge into a popular talking point and viral online topic by warning people about it. In this case, a very niche internet forum joke about cooking chicken in NyQuil popped up on the radar of someone who worked at the organization, and it was determined that this was both a dangerous thing, and it is, if someone in theory were to do it, and also something that kids would probably try because it was stupid and funny and would do well on the internet, and it thus had all the markings of a viral challenge. What existed related to this concept on TikTok up till that point, though, was primarily reaction videos. People watching something and filming their reaction to it. And they were reacting to a video that was filmed back in 2017, which was posted on 4chan, which is an online forum where people intentionally try to be inflammatory, basically. And somehow, again, through a sort of intergenerational game of telephone, many tiny miscommunications and misinterpretations along a signal chain resulted in a distorted idea of what was actually happening. And that led to the adults in the room, some of them with regulatory powers, thinking that this was a thing that a bunch of kids were doing and encouraging other people to do, which of course, up until that point, they were not. A few videos existed from many years ago, but nobody was doing these things, except perhaps in a few instances as a joke, on a very niche forum, where such jokes were encouraged, but even there, the things in them not really taken seriously. All of which bears the hallmarks of a moral panic. Similar to parents worrying that playing Dungeons and Dragons would lead to satanic murder cults back in the 1980s and 90s, all of those concerns based on misunderstandings and misinterpretations and biases about younger generations and the things they like to do. It's all worry-mongering, basically. Alongside concerns about change and unfamiliar mediums and technologies, mixed with a fair dose of media entities like news stations and magazines wanting to have something salacious to say to their audience. And all of that blends together into a mix that can, in turn, accidentally create the very thing they worry is happening. While Kia and Hyundai stealing-themed videos were already out there in the digital ether then, they were not a big thing, and they certainly were not a cottage industry oriented around showing teenagers how to steal cars. But once the adults stepped in and misunderstood and started warning each other about their misunderstanding and then shouting at their kids about that misunderstanding as well, it became a real thing, and they sparked the conflagration they were frantically trying to avoid. 
the practical consequence of such panics is that sometimes kids will then actually sometimes do the stupid stuff that they hear about, eating Tide Pods and things like that. It's still rare, thankfully, but the potentiality of that happening is much higher once the adults and mass media entities start saying that this is a thing that all the young people are doing. That type of feedback makes a concept that the teenagers in the room probably never would have heard about otherwise. It makes it seem a lot more appealing because they're being told that all the other people their age are doing it and the folks involved who are supposedly doing it are getting all of this attention and a lot of these big powerful media entities and all the adults are outraged about it, which makes it extra appealing. And all of that aggregates into a real temptation, potentially, for some of these very people that they're trying to protect from this idea. These sorts of news waves, based on false premises, also amplify incentives within the news world that encourage otherwise serious and reputable news entities to blend their real serious stuff with fluff and badly fact-checked fabrications, all of which is intended to attract more eyeballs, as their business models demand, but then ultimately have the long-term effect of diminishing their reputations and the quality of the content they produce and publish. The future for Hyundai, will probably be littered with lawsuits, as this is just one issue that has been discovered across their vehicle lineup in the past several years. But there's a good chance other economic distortions will shift thieves' attention in yet another direction, maybe another car model, and another group of victims sometime soon, at which point we may see more panics, justified or otherwise, and more opportunities for eyeball-grabbing and well-meaning, but ultimately harmful, generational misunderstandings. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness by Megan O'Rourke. The subject of this book is unfortunately, I think, more relevant than ever especially as we start to learn more about what we currently call long COVID, alongside a slew of other chronic illnesses that seem to be coming from all directions to impact a whole lot of different people around the world in different ways. The variables triggering these things, not yet identified, and in a lot of cases, even the shape of them, not truly understood at this point. But to me, this book was most useful in the sense that it made me more aware of some of the problems that you otherwise probably won't see if you are not one of the people dealing with such problems on a day-to-day -day basis. Some of the structural issues, unfortunately, that can make life more difficult for people who suffer through such things. And some of the larger scale consequences that we might be facing collectively if we continue to not understand these things and to in some cases ignore them or shove them aside and pretend that they don't exist on a societal and economic scale. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Invisible Kingdom by Megan O'Rourke. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.